Welcome to Reframe and Reset Your Career, a career development podcast to help if you're looking for a job, feeling stuck in your career, looking to change your perspective, or just rediscover your why. I'm your host, Harsha Borolesa, and this podcast came about from my passion for neuroscience and psychology and their interaction with career and personal development. In each episode, I will be interviewing recognized experts and successful professionals and asking them about their career journey, their real life experiences, and to share the insights and strategies that have helped their careers thrive. Implementing change is not easy and does take time, but I do hope that their stories will inspire you to take a fresh look at your career and assist you on your path to a more successful and fulfilling career. Here are some highlights of today's episode. But I still think that there's enough flexibility for most of us that we shouldn't feel trapped in something that we're not we're not enjoying or that's not there for us. Perhaps early on, say to that boss, well, I'd love to be promoted in a year or nine months, six months. What do I need to do for this to happen? Time is the one thing that we cannot replace. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Reframe and Reset Your Career podcast. I'm delighted to welcome Shola Kay. Welcome, Shola. Hi, Harsha. Wonderful to be here today. Thanks, Shola. Shola is a multi-award winning speaker on empathy at work, inclusive leadership and communication. She is passionate about helping organizations create an atmosphere of belonging for their people and for those individuals in turn to have the skills needed to make their full contribution with powerful and effective communication. She does this through workshops and consulting. Shola has had an amazingly diverse career. After graduating from Cambridge and Emory University, she worked for blue chip corporates in the high pressure industries of investment banking and IT management consulting in both New York and London. She then performed as a professional jazz and Motown singer, both internationally and throughout the UK. I first met Shola through the Toastmasters program although she was significantly more accomplished than me. Shola is a distinguished Toastmaster, the highest level you're able to achieve. She is also the author of two books, Big Talk, Small Talk, and How to Be a Diva at Public Speaking. Welcome, Shola. Hi, Harsha. You build me up there. I think it can only be downhill from, from that. Our, our <laughs> listeners are privileged to have you uh, with us today. Thank you. It's a privilege to be here. Thanks a lot, Harsha. <laughs> so, Shola, would you like to um, share a quote with our listeners? Absolutely. So I, I'm going to share a quote from Oprah Winfrey because she's inspired so many people. I love this quote. I actually have it on the about page of my website, but it's that the highest honour on earth that you will ever have is the honour of being yourself. Your only true job as a human being is to discover why you came, why you are here. And that's from Miss Oprah Winfrey. I love that quote because I think authenticity and and knowing that we have a place and we're here to contribute is so important. I totally agree with that. And I think it's that whole thing, especially now, you just need to be yourself. Um, And I think being yourself now, given the whole question about diversity and inclusion, I think it's so important because if you go to work and pretend to be something else, then actually all those experiences from your life, they're just not coming through. So I I totally agree, agree with that. If we take it back to your early life, Shola, I saw that you had a, a pretty difficult childhood. Perhaps difficult is, is going a little bit far, but unusual in that my family is uh, Nigerian. 
at the time when they moved to the UK from Nigeria, there was a lot of families at that time, because they were trying to work, they didn't necessarily have the time and energy to raise their own children. So they what they would do is find families to look after their kids um, and foster their kids. So I, um, myself and my brother and my little sister, when she came along, all lived with an English family probably about 50, 60 miles away from where my parents were. And my foster family were great. They, they raised us like we were their own kids. They were loving, supportive. But I think for me, always um, growing up knowing in the back of my mind that at some point I'd have to leave this loving family that was really all I knew and then go and live with my birth parents who were my parents. But it was a completely different situation, different city, different way of living, different set of values. So that was a, a sort of challenging time for me. Um, and then, of course, when I did actually go and transition and live with my parents, it took a little bit of getting used to. But um, it, I guess it, it's made me more adaptable. It's made me flexible. And also to grow up with two different sets of parents, with two different sets of values. And uh, that, that's all, all, that was a, quite an interesting experience as well. I can say that in the ben- with the benefit of hindsight. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, it was a little bit unusual. No, that, that's great that you're sharing that because I think it's important for our listeners to see that people don't have these very straightforward, linear um, career paths and lives. And, you know, people start from different places with different experiences. I, I saw that you uh, had studied natural sciences at university. And I, I quite laughed at that because... I was thinking about reading natural sciences at Cambridge too. So um, I was wondering, how was that experience at Cambridge? Did you, did you enjoy it there? I don't want to be the, the, the bringer of bad news to your podcast. I can't say I particularly did. And I think there were so many people there who had been raised knowing that at some point they would go to Oxbridge and they were just totally ready for everything. You know, the, going to the, 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 their college, the bars, going punting they were just they were primed and boom this was the time of their lives and for me it was so different than anything I'd been used to before I think it took me probably two and a half years to get used to being there and then finally when it's oh you're about to graduate that I that I'd sort of cracked the code of having a good time so I ended up spending another year at Oxbridge this time I went to Oxford for a year to do a, a PGCE just because I felt like well I spent two and a half years trying to figure out the system I can't leave yet. I've got to stay on a bit longer. <laughs> I think that that's an interesting point because with a lot of these institutions, it's really, un- if you're not familiar with how they work, it's trying to understand the unwritten code. And yeah, it does take time to figure out what do people really mean? There's a subtext in a way, there, there are all these things going on, on underneath the surface. So trying to understand what is going on, it does take time. Anyway, I, I suppose it's good you had another year at Oxford doing the PGCE. So, yeah, it, and I, that, I did enjoy that year. I think in part because Oxford's a bit more like London as well, so it, it was a little bit easier to to sort of fit in there and kind of understand how things worked. But but yeah, I think a lot of people struggle. Some people just can't wait to get to university because they're it's their time of freedom, and others just take them a little bit longer to adapt. So I was one of the second group. After Oxford, I think, did you go straight to Emory in Atlanta? I worked. Yeah, I worked for a couple of years. So I, I with my PGC that I'd got, I then worked in a school in, in South London in Putney. 
a secondary school as a science teacher for a couple of years. And I remember there was a pivotal moment for me where I was, I was perhaps what, 23, I guess, 22. And I was telling off this year nine student because she was making too much noise. And she literally just yelled, screamed at the top of her voice. What's the sound I can hear? Your voice is like a rat squeaking in my ear. She just yelled that I sounded like a rat. And I remember at that moment, I just thought, I'm early 20s. I don't need to be here hearing this. And I think that day I went home and I thought, okay, what what else can I do? I'm not ready to be subjected to this every day in my work as a teacher. So um, at that point, I started looking at other steps that I could take and decided I would go and um, go to the US and do a master's degree. So um, I remember, you know, getting all the books and things, taking the, I think it's the GRE exam and and ending up going to live in Atlanta for several years and studying um, neuroscience or neurochemistry um, at Emory University. I'm a big big fan of neuroscience and psychology. And part of the reason for this podcast came from my interest in those two areas, almost trying to see how you can change your perspective, reframe things um, by just looking at things in different ways. It's interesting when you talk about how you had this incident with this girl, because for some people, they would have just said, well, that's just part of teaching life. I have to suck it up. You took a much better attitude thinking, well, look, this has happened. I'm still very young. There are so many different things that I can do. And rather than just staying where where you were, you took action. And I think that's a great lesson for many people. You've got to assess, well, what's in it for me here? Is is this a, a career that I see myself in for many years? Or how did I find myself in this position? And if it's somewhere that you can see yourself moving on from, then why stay and suffer if that's not your long-term goal? When I was doing a lot more coaching, you see people who are in full-time jobs that don't particularly enjoy, and of course you talk about careers, Harsha, so you know all about this. People in full-time jobs, they don't enjoy what they're doing, they're just there to collect the paycheck. I think you've got to think, well, is, is this how I want to spend a significant portion of my life? Because time is the one thing that we cannot replace. So really thinking carefully. And sometimes it's just an inkling. Sometimes you don't have a master plan, but there's just something in your gut that says this isn't right. And you just have to keep taking the next step and the next step without necessarily even having a master plan, but just one step at a time and eventually hoping that all those steps will take you to a place where, yeah, this is where I need to be. And the the experiences I've had in the past all lend themselves to me being successful in this moment, in this time that I'm at now. I think that's such a great point because it's the whole thing of taking action. I think doing nothing really is unsustainable. And you're so right. Time is something we can never get back. We only have one life. I'm a big believer in in what you're saying. There are better ways of, of living. Don't you think so? Absolutely. And I think it becomes harder when you, the more you've got dependents or you've got certain bills to pay, it becomes a lot harder to be able to make that leap. And so it may be that you've got to take smaller steps and sort of cover your <laughs> CYA, you know, as you go, yeah, of, course, yeah. um, of course, rather than just sort of throwing in the towel and, and moving on to the next thing. But I still think that there's enough flexibility for most of us that we shouldn't feel trapped in, in something that we're not, we're not enjoying or that's not there for us, that's not meant for us. And, and if you're not enjoying it, that will definitely pass on to your, your partner, your family, all the people around you. So actually, okay, you could be paying the bills, but if you're not happy, then that's a terrible situation to be in. 
absolutely and it, and it could be that you ch- instead of changing your environment you change yourself so it might be that you then think about what your values are perhaps look in a different direction for for that guidance and then come back to that same role but with the renewed with with, with extra vigor because you've now seen what else you can get from that particular position or perhaps there's been things that you you're, you've missed out on because you weren't sort of looking in the right direction so so I think, yeah, we can change our environment, we can change ourselves, but trucking on um, and grinning and bearing it is is not really ideal. Totally agree. And after Emory, I think you worked as a management consultant? Yeah, so the early part of my life is I could label it as had no clue. <laughs> so when I got my master's degree, uh, a friend of mine said, oh, you should try and get a job as a management consultant. I think that's quite a prestigious role to have. And and I had no clue again, you know, so I, I applied for a few places got a job this time working up in Princeton in the the northeast and again just found myself in this position didn't really know what I was letting myself in for I learned a lot it's been useful for me now as a, a professional speaker because I talk a lot about my early career days and how I found myself in various situations in that particular role um it was a small company there wasn't a lot of training I think some of the staff, including myself, didn't feel very supported in the role. And that's one of the things I talk about. It's it's tough, I think, when you're in that sort of a, a role position. And if you're young, you haven't had a lot of industry experience. And then one day you're sat in a meeting with VPs and people who've been in an industry for 20, 30 years, and you're supposed to be adding value. It can be a tough, a tough area to go into if you're not the sort of person who can, you know, instantly just jump at, yes, you know, I think, <laughs> even though you don't really know what you think. You just <laughs> I'm quite, I guess, straightforward person. And I didn't feel comfortable offering some sort of half-baked consulting advice. So yeah, it took me a while to settle into that role. I think that's really interesting, this whole idea of uh, confidence. And sometimes, even if you're not quite sure, you have to come across in this very authoritative manner. And I think you have this contradiction between if you're an analytical person, you know, you probably haven't done all the analysis that is required. Was that the situation you you felt you were in? Yeah, you, you completely hit the nail on the head because I'm very analytical. as a, and, and analytical types don't like to be wrong, typically. They like to go off, do their research get the information, come back, boom, this is the answer. This sort of fly by the seat of your pants is deeply uncomfortable for those types of people. You know, you absolutely just didn't feel comfortable at all uh, without that sort of knowledge and the rigor behind me to say, well, that, yeah, studied this, looked at these numbers, have these experiences, this is what you should do next. It didn't feel good at all in those early days, at least. And it's interesting you made that point because uh, another guest, uh, Dr. Grace Lorden, was saying that sometimes with um, ethnic minorities and women, they almost feel that they have to um, over-prepare and overcompensate by having qualifications, having done the work, whereas sometimes uh, men can feel that they can wing it. And it's almost this sort of cultural shift. And, and it's interesting, I suppose, going forward, now that we're all on, on Zoom, you, or sort of at, at home, I suppose people can maybe see who the productive people are and who the people who are talking. Because you know how it is in meetings, I'm sure you've been there, where one person just dominates and they're not talking anything that really adds value, but they like the sound of their own voice. Don't you think so? Yeah, I think that's such an important point because I talk, uh, I, because I do a lot of work now on diversity, equity and inclusion. 
And inclusive meetings are one of the things that I often discuss. There's so much to unpick in the way that meetings are run. Because first of all, as you mentioned, people who are from minorities, women, etc., there's something called stereotype threat, where you're, if you're afraid that you're going to be likened to a negative stereotype, you there's actual physical manifestations of that. So you feel anxiety, you feel you know brain fog, and you're much less likely to share because you're just concerned. You're concerned that if I say this thing, am I representative of every black woman in the whole world? You know, that sort of thing. Yeah, so there are dynamics like that at play. And then also someone, Daniel Kahneman, who wrote the book Thinking Fast and Slow, he's got a new book out called Noise. And someone just messaged me this morning and they said, well, in the book, he's saying that quite often the first person to speak up in a meeting, that is the idea that's adopted. It's very rare that people listen to the second idea and then they adopt that or the third one. And I think that is because there's this myth of the, you know, the charismatic leader, quite dominating, they speak up first. And then because others don't want to show any signs of dissension or being disagreeable, will often just go with that. It's like when you have a group of people and they go out for dinner and there's one person who's like, right, this is where we go. Then there's a few people like, oh, I don't, I don't want to eat Thai food, you know, but just because that leader has said Thai, everyone's going to the Thai restaurant. So it's, I think we have to learn to express those, whether it's doubts or just people be a bit tougher so they can hear dissenting ideas and still bounce back so that everybody comes to the right result rather than ego playing a role. There are two really interesting points that come out of that. Your boss should not be the first person who speaks in a meeting because otherwise nobody is going to disagree with that with your boss because it's a, a career limiting move. And the second thing is, I think with diversity, I think the one thing that people sometimes forget is obviously there's a fairness thing, which you know, I totally agree with. But if you don't hire different people with different perspectives and you hire one type of person, even if it's just like Oxbridge people or you know, Harvard and Yale people, you just get one perspective. And even if there is diversity in the sort of ethnicity or gender, it's still one type of perspective because they've had that education. So what is the point of having 10 people from that same university? I agree. And it, it, it's everyone sort of fitting in and having a great time because we all have the same background and we all get on really well, buddy, 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 versus, uh, which is what we call fit, versus adding somebody who doesn't necessarily fit. And you've got that tension that happens and that friction. But that's where we get, you know, if you think about a diamond being formed from that compression and tension, um, in the same way, those good ideas come out of the friction and the so it doesn't feel great necessarily, but you know that there's going to be the rigor and the examination of ideas because no one is just going to say, oh, yeah, he's my buddy from university. Whatever he says is great. No, <laughs> if you've got different people, they're going to be a little bit more, more, uh, a bit tougher in terms of, OK, will this idea get through? Let's have more questions, etc. But that's where we get the good results from, the better results. I think, again, it's about people being comfortable with being uncomfortable, whether that's with dissension. Um, I heard this great quote the other day, which is that dissension is the cousin of diversity. I think it's so true. If you have a mix of people, there's going to be disagreements. Sadly, as humans, we haven't learned yet how to deal with that. I, I think that's a great point, because I think sometimes with, with criticism, people take it so personally. And I think what you have to say is, look, there's a greater good. People are not saying this to like put me down. They're just saying it because hopefully we're all in it together and we're trying to come to the best outcome. And I think if you look at it like that and not personal, then it's a completely different way of, of looking at things. Absolutely. It's so true. And I think a lot of that's about psychological safety and people understanding that we're all playing on the same team. You know, if you work for the same company, why are we 
having all these rivalries when we just want to get more market share or just, you know, get a great product that serves our customers. Totally agree. But but one thing I found quite fascinating when I looked at your website, you mentioned that you lacked confidence. And you know, obviously when I'm talking to you now, I find that you know, so hard to believe. And I, I find confidence is such a fascinating area because if you have it, it makes such a difference to your life. But I don't think there's any particular magic formula to get it. I mean, how did you overcome your lack of confidence, Shola? Yeah, I think it's a, a number of things. And I, I think there are situations now where I, I lack confidence or I feel, oh, gosh, I wish I had more bravado or I wish I'd been seen this, this situation before and I wouldn't feel like I was in, in an environment that's unknown to me. A lot of it was around following my heart and, and understanding that things don't always work out, but at least I took a step. I, I did the thing that appealed to my gut. And then having a little bit more trust and faith around that, I think that's given me confidence. Also having role models, whether they're people who are actually in your life or people you watch and you see who look like you or who've had difficult backgrounds and have managed to be successful, that's always inspiring as well. There's a great book, which is called Mini Habits by a guy called Stephen Guise, G-U-I-S-E. And he's got lots of really um, interesting little tips and tricks in his book for how to overcome things like rumination, where you keep, you know, debating the same old tired stuff again and again, and how to get more confident. And it, just little, little hacks, like telling yourself that you're the best at X in the room. So let's say that you're in a meeting uh, with a you know, C-suite execs and you're thinking, well, I'm the best tiddlywinks player in here. Just by telling your brain, I'm the best at, mm, it gives you that extra boost of confidence that you might need in that moment to speak slower or to carry yourself and sort of hold, have your shoulders down and use more expansive gestures. So little hacks that can just get you through the next meeting or the next conversation can really help. And I remember once I was in um, Cyprus in like a supermarket and I was thinking, oh, I, I don't speak Greek or something. So I was just using that as an excuse <laughs> to beat myself up. Right. And then I thought, well, hold on. But surely you are the best Diana Ross tribute in the entire supermarket. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> so it just it could be the most random thing. I'm the best at changing my ba- my baby son's nappy. You know, just something to kind of get you through the next moment and the next moment and the next moment. And then you've done all those things that you were afraid of doing. I think that's such a great tip. And it, it's interesting because I, I come from a sporting background and I play cricket at quite a high level. And I, you know, when I'm feeling down sometimes, I always try and look back to those days and think, well, this is something that I did, which maybe such a tiny fraction of people could do. And it just changes, it shifts my mindset or, you know, I'm doing this podcast or I'm starting a YouTube channel, you know, whatever it is that makes you feel good. And I think it's a very personal thing then I think it's just about shifting your perspective, shifting your mindset. Or if you're procrastinating, just doing one thing and just thinking, tick, I've got that done. It just helps you move forward. But that's such a great point about confidence or or even like faking to make it. Um, and what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I, I like that expression. And there's another one that I heard recently that Zig Ziglar said, which is, feeling it in advance so instead of so if you know if I do these things I'll be confident then just feel the confidence now because you know that it's coming so it's almost like you've got it on loan until it's actually in your hand so so yeah anything like that that helps you project into a place of confidence and feeling more able those are all really good little statements to, to to make to yourself I also think if you have mastery of something, even as you're saying, if it's tiddlywinks or something very small, there's this this sort of network effect, which you do one thing well, 
and that makes you feel good and therefore you do other things really well and i think always trying to get back to that okay i'm really good at this one discrete thing and then hopefully that flows out into other areas of your life yeah very very well put very well put and that's why i think if you look at a lot of sports people they've been really successful and then they take that success and the mastery that they've they've gained on the sports field to business or to broadcasting or whatever it might be yeah i think that that's a, you've hit the nail on the head where you the way you described that harsha oh, oh, thank you or or top diana ross tribute singers <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it's funny because we haven't mentioned the singing but basically after i left cor- the corporate world i became a professional singer for a few years and i sang motown and jazz i think it, it came up in the description didn't it at the yes. beginning it's quite funny because for years and years I would be singing songs like Baby Love and I really don't like, a lot of the most female Motown tracks are quite bland, whereas the, the guys like The Temptations, Smokey Robinson, they had much more interesting songs to sing. So if I had to choose rep- Motown repertoire, I would typically want to sing Stevie Wonder or sing Smokey Robinson rather than something like Baby Love. So there, I, I did prefer the post-Supremes era than when she was in the Supremes, for sure. <laughs> Was that produced by um, Sheik and Nile Rogers? That that album, um, you know, I'm coming out, my old piano. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I think they were produced by Nile Rogers, or there was some sort of collaboration because they're, they're so catchy. Those songs, that just that really great disco feel. Yeah, as you can <laughs> see, I, I love music, and I'm a particular fan of Nile Rogers. And it's the first time I can name check him. In, in a, like a previous podcast, I name checked um, Johnny Marr of the Smiths, who's, a, who's another legendary musician. Fantastic. There you go. You get them all. Have you got a list of uh, <laughs> your, your favourite artists to somehow drop into your podcast, Harsha? Well, I, I'm, I'm trying to. I'm trying to. <laughs> <laughs> but what, why did you transition into the whole performing uh, gig, Shola? What, what Was that just out of love or just to try and do something different? As a child, I always had this this idea of a vision of myself on a stage. And it wasn't really about the screaming and the yelling of the audience, but there was just something that seemed quite appealing. So after I left management consulting and came back to the UK, I had a childhood dream. Let's just go for it. Let's see where that can take me. So I ended up taking singing lessons and then and had a career as a professional singer for, I think, about a decade, maybe a bit less. I'm really glad I did because I think it was one of those things where quite often we have dreams as kids, but we don't but we don't necessarily think that we can make them happen. Although it seemed like a really weird step, you know, to, to go from management consulting to account director to Motown singer. It, it's weird because where I am now as a professional speaker uh, and somebody who also talks about communication skills, everything I learned from being on stages and talking to audiences and reading an audience, they all come into what I do today. So it wasn't time wasted at all. And I think this is the thing with careers where you often wonder, you know, you're on this sort of zigzag trajectory and you're wondering if anything ever makes sense. I think if you do stay true to yourself long enough, you'll find that every experience has value and there's a way that you can somehow bring it into what you do. Oh, no, totally. And I think the whole idea of any sort of performance, there's that sort of preparation and building up to actually delivering. So actually, if you get into the working environment, there's that big presentation or there's that big interview. Um, when, I, when I'm feeling stressed, I think back to my sporting days 
And I think, well, look, if I can perform at you know, almost professional level uh, under real pressure, then sure, I can do an interview. I, I can do a presentation and I can do it well. And I think it's just managing your nerves. If you're going to perform, you have to have a certain level of nervousness. But rather than working against it, you should work with it. Don't, don't you think so? Yeah, I think the, the nerves should never go away, but it's just understanding what they are. And it's understanding that it's because you care. Before any speaking gig, whether it's virtual or in person, I always just, I'm not a particularly religious person, but I just say, please let the tech work. Let everybody get what they need from this session and let me deliver what people need to hear. That's the respect, out of respect for my audience. And hopefully, you know, whatever level my speaking reaches, I'll still always, you know, want to sort of use that bit of anxiety, isn't the right word, but the butterflies, I guess, to channel that energy into giving people a top performance. I think with those butterflies, there is some biological neuroscience type thing there where I think when you're feeling, you know, in that sort of flight or flight mode, that you know, maybe something does happen. I, obviously, I'm not a neuroscientist, but I think that's probably a good sign. So I always think when I'm feeling stressed, even before a podcast, I think, oh, yeah, that's actually a good sign. And if I didn't feel like that, that would probably be worse because, as you say, you don't care. And I think when you don't care, your performance just naturally drops, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think you can sometimes you see with speakers or presenters or whatever, they, you can tell that they're rattling off something that they've done a hundred times, like there's no passion and they kind of maybe trip over the words or they're speaking super fast because you can tell that they've just said this thing, you know, so often. I think if you get to that stage where it becomes so sort of tedious or like, oh, this again, I think it's time to move on and do something else. I think we all need to feel like we're stepping up and we're doing something exciting, but a little bit risky, perhaps, because that's what makes a lot of us sort of play our best game. So, um, so yeah, I, t- I agree with you on that one, Harsha. Thank you. Um, Sean, I'm getting a bit worried. You're agreeing with a lot of the stuff I'm saying. Please, please feel free to disagree. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. No. If, I, if, I, if there was something I didn't agree with, Harshal, I would tell you. Don't you worry. Thank you. So after or, or when you were sort of still performing, you set up your own company and coaching business. So what made you sort of want to get into that? Well, I felt as though it was time for me to get back into the corporate world again. So once I'd left, I remember thinking, gosh, I've had a couple of bad experiences in a row with particular companies I'd worked at. And I just felt that it wasn't a healthy environment for me to be in. But then with the confidence I gained from singing, I did a lot of life coaching as well, trained, did loads of personal development on myself as well as on others. And I had something to offer. I think that's the important thing. I had something to offer. And also that my experiences would be useful to share with people. And it's funny because whenever I speak about my experiences as a minority and what happened in the workplace, and because uh, I didn't share that the, this consulting job I was on, there was a period where they put me on probation because they felt that because I wasn't speaking up in meetings that I didn't have anything to offer or perhaps I was lazy or just incompetent. So um, instead of trying to develop me as an individual within that organization, they just put me on probation. And with the help of a colleague, I turned things around, stayed there longer, found something similar in the next role I was in, and started to see that at least at that time, there was this tendency towards not developing people, but just saying, oh, well, you, you looked good on paper, but you didn't deliver next person. And when I share that, because I tended to think, well, I, you know, I, I was all... 
I must have been an awful employee. What was wrong with me, etc. But when I share that, especially if there are minorities, the number of people that chip in and say, that happened to me. I saw that happen to somebody. It, it's amazing. And I think I'm lucky in that I'm self-employed. So I'm free to share these stories because many people who are in employment, obviously, it's not to their benefit to, to share what, what's happened to them. I see it as a, an opportunity to, to talk about this. And that's partly why, you know, it's really important for me to talk about empathy at work, talk about these workplace stories, talk about DEI, talk about communication. So I think all of it sort of comes together and, and it's something that employers need to work on. But also as employees, there's uh, one of my clients recently asked me to create a, a session called Ask for What You Want. And it was designed for their minority employees because a lot of these employees were either leaving the industry or feeling like they weren't getting the opportunities they needed. If I look back at my own situation, if I had felt that I had the sort of the agency to ask, I would have been a bit more astute into in terms of, oh, well, so what do I need to do to excel at this job? What can I ask my manager for? What can but I think I didn't even understand back then that that was an option available to me. So I think it's important that not only that employers do their bit in terms of making workplaces more inclusive and helping people feel they belong, but I think we need to understand what what do we want, what do we need, how do we get the job done, what do we need to ask for, uh, what do we need to ask, you know, to learn and to see so that we can be better and, and do better. So yeah, I think it all it is a sort of cauldron really of <laughs> inclusion, communication, etc. I totally agree. There are two sides to that coin. It's the employer and the employee. But then I think sometimes with the employee, they don't uh, maybe understand the rules of the game. You know, like, how do I progress in my career? And maybe if you're not confident, you think I just have to do good work and therefore I'll progress. But that just isn't the case. And I think part of the reason for starting this podcast and you know some of the work I'm doing is this whole idea of taking almost control back of your career and trying to understand how you can navigate that. Because I think simply working hard and working well is unfortunately isn't good enough. You have to be able to market yourself internally and externally. And, and, I, and I don't blame employers because they, they, you know, your manager, they've got a, they're probably getting grief from the people above them and they have targets to meet. So unless you make it as easy as possible for them to promote you, and I think things like um, you know, going on LinkedIn, developing your personal brand, that's so powerful because if they can see people outside the organization value what you have to say, then that stands for a lot. Yeah, I agree. And I think there are more opportunities now for us to manage our careers beyond just what's going on in the workplace. Because we didn't, you know, all those years ago, social media didn't even exist. In a way, there are more opportunities than ever before to, and even if you know that I, okay, I'm not going to stay in employment for long, but I want to be a consultant, you know, you can start to build your personal brand aside from your role so that as soon as you step out of that company, there's opportunities that are waiting for you or even having side hustles. I mean, my partner was telling me the other day that I think there are more people with side hustles that have developed things, you know, during lockdown than ever before, because we do, you can start a business quite easily without, you know, lots of capital, you know, et cetera. So it could be that if you're seeing that your career isn't going in the direction that you want, it's about being proactive about, okay, let's have a couple of things running at the same time even if it's just to give you leverage so that you can say, well, you know, I need this pay rise. Well, if I don't get it, I'm going to leave as opposed to, well, this is all I've got. Oh my gosh, I can't do anything else. I think we've got to look at it as this is a time of real opportunity, grasp everything that's available with both hands. 
That's a great point, especially about the pay rise. But I, I do think if you are trying to get, get on in your career in an organization, you have to almost take a long, a sort of a medium term approach. And you can't just go up to your boss and say, look, give me a pay rise. But if you, if you over like a, a nine month period, you're producing good work and you're appearing on social media, then at least you can go, go up to him and say, look, I've done all these things. I've gone above and beyond what my targets were for the year. I think I deserve a pay rise. And then if you don't get one in that situation, he can't just say, well, it's because you haven't worked well or there's no money. Maybe there are more fundamental issues. And I think that's just as important to figure that out, you know, rather than waiting for two years and then pushing, uh, at least you've saved yourself a year, maybe. Yeah, I think it's so important. And I think it, going back to this idea of asking for what you want, I think, I think you do have to play a longer game and, and, and have a strategy. But I think it's also important to perhaps early on say to that boss, well, I'd love to be promoted in a year or nine months, six months. What do I need to do for this to happen? And then they might say, oh, you need to do this. this. And then you do those things. Some people you'll go back and, you'll, and they'll say, oh, no, no, you know, you need to do this, this and this. If you ask, if you're proactive, at least you can flush out the people that are insincere. You can flush out those managers that have not got your best interests at heart. And you quickly realize, oh, OK, either I need to change department or find my boss's boss or whatever it might be. Because I think if you just rely on the performance reviews when they come and just hope that people notice you, unfortunately, that's not always the best way. And I remember this session that I did, there was someone there, I was talking about performance reviews and they said, I've been at this firm 14 years, I've had three performance reviews in that time. I said, well, you've only had three in 14 years, you need to be asking, you need to be hustling. And, and if they don't want, want you, you need to be looking elsewhere. It's funny you talk talk about that situation because there's that Johnny Cash song where he no no sorry the Kenny Rogers the gambler where he talks about you know you've got to know when to show them when to hold them and when to walk away and when to run don't be afraid of just saying look it's not working I, I wouldn't do that without a job to go to I think sometimes you just got to be be prepared to to move on absolutely and I think that's where if you know that you've you've been doing a great job make your own notes and collate all this information so that when you do leave you've got something there or when you go on you can say well I did this I turned this around it's really good to be proactive and manage your career you know with both hands rather than just hoping that you'll you'll be noticed and, and promoted and, and actually that, that's a great point you make sure because if you as you go along if you update your CV not not for the purposes of I'm going to leave but just so you can have something where it shows these are things that I've done and also your LinkedIn profile. I think that's a great way to you know, put your new experience on there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and moving on to you being a, a published author, would you like to give a quick summary um, of your book or, or books? <laughs> Thanks, Harsha. Yeah, so my first book uh, is called How to Be a Diva at Public Speaking. And DIVA is an acronym which stands for D is for dynamic, so being a dynamic speaker. I is inspiring, which is about... Uh, storytelling. V is being valuable, so having a good structure and great content that people can learn from. And then A is for being authentic. So that was the first book, which I self-published back in 2017. And then I was approached last year by an American uh, publishing company to write the second book. So the second book that I wrote is called Big Talk, Small Talk. And it's all about just general communication skills. But where it's a little different is it's very much scenario based. So the book contains about 40 different little vignettes, little scenarios. And then there's a a teaching tip at the end of each one, giving people some instruction as to how they can 
um, just a sort of summary of what happened in that in that vignette. I like that format. And actually, um, I, I don't know if I've told you, Shola, but I've started writing a book on career development. And I'm, and I'm using that same strategy, just having these small vignettes, because I think it's much easier to sort of dip in and out. And I've, I've actually read your book and I, I really like it. So, so what's it like to be a, a proper published author, not just a, a self-published author? <laughs> it's, it's fun. I mean, it's nice that they do a little bit more of the marketing. But it, it, it's interesting because as a speaker, I mean, I've been approached by some publishing houses and they say, well, we'll give you a deal, but you've got to sell 30,000 books in a year or because they expect you to be in front of big audiences. But with COVID, it's not been possible to be in front of huge audiences to sell loads of books. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely nice to have two books. I'm sure you'll be excited to get your one out harsher and maybe there'll be two and three and four for you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just be happy to do one, Shola. Is there a third book on the way, Shola? Is it? Yeah, you know what? It's funny because I wrote a second book before I was approached by the this publishing house. So I've still got the, the, the second book, which will probably be book, be book number three, which is on communication skills for meetings. And it's in particular for introverts or sort of techie analytical types who find it really hard to, to speak up spontaneously. And it's full of frameworks and uh, sort of little um, hacks, really, to be a better communicator when you're under pressure. So I think it's an important book and it's definitely one I want to get out there as soon as I can. Looking, definitely looking forward to seeing that. With this podcast, Charlotte, this is very much a career podcast. Are there any particular pieces of career advice that you would give people just in terms of communication, say with interviews? Yeah, I think don't wing it is, is a big one. Practice answering questions. It's funny, somebody that was in my, um, my community for public speaking and communication, he said he'd had, I think, about 40 or 50 interviews and hadn't got a single job. And then we worked together just for a week on frameworks, on how to answer questions. And then within the space of, of that sort of seven days, he actually found a job. So I think it's possible. And I think you've got to, whether it's asking family and friends to watch you on Zoom or to interview you, because it's just little things like, you know, are you looking in the camera? Or what this guy would do is he'd be asked a question and he'd say, I think, blah, blah, blah. <sighs> and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you can imagine just things like that that you may not spot that's my main tip just don't don't rely just on yourself but ask other people to feedback sorry for, for the listeners on our podcast who can't see Shola what she was doing was staring into the camera and then you know, jumping back which is just not a good look on zoom but but I think that that's such a great tip uh, just get somebody to go through the questions with you and actually record it and watch yourself back um, and then if you have these annoying ticks, maybe uh, the cloth clothing you're wearing is not appropriate or, or whatever it is, the lighting. Um, I think I, I totally agree with you. Preparation is so important. And, and it's funny when you know, I was doing the Toastmasters stuff, I always found that the more you just keep practicing it, keep going over your speech, you, you can almost never do it enough because I think the more you do it, then the answers become much more natural and not so artificial in a way and then you can actually make almost own the answers yourself yeah it's interesting because with ted i was reading about ted talks and 
what they do with each speaker that goes to does the TED Talks, and this is the you know the big one in, in Washington, I think, uh, Washington State, I believe. What they'll do is they'll give each speaker a project manager, and they'll task the speaker with memorizing this, this speech word for word. Because then, once you've actually internalized it, that's when you can be relaxed and be present with the audience, rather than thinking, "Well, what, what's what have I got to say next?" And I think it's the same thing where. With your stories, the interviewer wants you to do well. They really, they don't want to waste time. If they've taken the time out to, to see you, that means that they think you have potential. So you don't fight yourself. Don't take yourself out of the game. Make sure you do all you can to be prepared. So it is really knowing what are those key stories that I can share that talk about my competencies and talk about uh, great things I've done in the past that would impress that interviewer. So yeah, just don't take yourself out of the game. Do that work. Because you never know when that great job is coming along and you're, you might be primed to get it. But because you talk yourself out of it, you don't get the opportunity. Totally agree. And just in terms of the work workplace, I think communication is so powerful. A lot of people have great knowledge, but they just can't pass it on in a, a succinct manner. Are there any particular tips there or, uh, in terms of communication at work? Being concise is really important. It's so funny because I was running a session for a group of women for a, a company in the States, and we were talking about being concise during meetings. We did a live demo, and I said to this woman, well, what's your favorite pastime? And can you share three points about why you like that pastime? And she said, well, actually, I've got two. I like this and that. That was just completely the thing that we shouldn't be doing because you kind of feel like we've got to be really earnest and honest. And sometimes that gets in the way of being succinct and punchy. So we've got to choose. And I'd rather go with the person who can sort of limit themselves a bit and just be punchy and just boom, 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 than, oh, well, it's this, it's that. Oh, Thinking in bullet points, really, not oversharing, understanding what's the key thing that you want to get across. And also thinking about the impact on the, the listener of that thing that you share. Because especially if you're in, whether it's in a meeting or a sales situation, it's not about you expressing yourself. It's about trying to, to have, an, have an outcome, right? A positive outcome at work. Maybe with friends, it's different, right? But at work, it's about the outcome. So yeah, really thinking in, in, in terms of bullets and just being much more punchy and clear. And I think that's a great point. It's almost giving the conclusion first, like this is what we should do, and then back it up with the the three points supporting it. Because I think sometimes where people go wrong is they say, here are these three bits of evidence and then give the conclusion. But actually it should be the conclusion up front, not at the end. Yeah, I, I really agree. And the more senior the people you're speaking with, the more they need that punchiness. Tell them up front, this is the conclusion. And then let them ask, right? Or, you know, tell them a little bit about what you did to, to find the supporting evidence. But they will doubtless ask what they want to find out from you. So, yeah, always lead with, with the big stuff, really, not the little stuff. Just in terms of uh, creating your brand and to the, the outside world or even internally, I think communication is such a, a powerful thing. You're just getting your message across. That can also be done, obviously, verbally, but also through you know, maybe writing a, an article or a LinkedIn post or a blog or a, a video log. Um, and I think communication going forward is just going to be so powerful. Don't you think so, Shola? Yeah, right. Writing. Uh, I, I think everyone's, some people have, prefer, have different modalities that they prefer. So I think you've 
first of all, it's important to know which one suits you best and then play to your strength. You know, there are some people who I always go to on LinkedIn because I love what they've written. There are some people I always go to on YouTube. And I think it's about finding what works for you and then exploiting that particular medium, but also making sure that you've got sort of a minimum level of competence with with the different the different uh, mediums as well because you know sometimes you will have to write a decent email or you will have to do that pr- promo video for work and it's good to have a basic level of, of skill at all of those areas brilliant and i think we're coming to the end of our time Charla. so is there anybody you'd like to give a shout out to um i always uh, like to have my guests if there's anybody they'd like to thank uh, for their journey or main one to be honest is my partner because he's very I guess it's been what 15 16 months of lockdown and we haven't had any sort of major (laughs) arguments just yet and he's always very supportive um, of everything I've done so yeah shout out to George wherever you are downstairs (laughs) (laughs) well done George Shola seems very happy so obviously you're doing a good job But also there's, there's so many authors, so many great books out there that, you know, to read and and, and be motivated and, and inspired by. So I can't list all of them, but yeah, lots of great authors and, and, and ideas that are flying around the world right now. Brilliant. And, and I think that's that whole idea of learning. It, I think you can always get better uh, and pick up new ideas from you know, where, wherever they come from. Um, I'm a big believer in YouTube. I probably watch a bit too much. Um, there are always these sort of great personal development tips and tricks and hacks and it's almost having a mindset of you're constantly learning thinking how can I incorporate this into what I'm doing in my daily life you can always get a little bit better yeah you have to be careful because I think you can just let they call it edutainment right where you're just learning stuff for fun and never implement anything and I think it I, I definitely can just you know listen to one audiobook after another after another without taking anything and and implementing so what I've started to do now is just make some notes my top notes on this book and then if I implement five things ten things or whatever then that's great and then I, it's fine to go on and do another one but because otherwise it's just a waste of time isn't it if you you read the book or listen to an audiobook and then write next as opposed to implementation yeah you're, you're almost looking for that silver bullet to change your life but i think with all these things it's down to educate uh, execution if you can execute small steps over a long period of time that will have this massive impact but if you're just reading and almost looking for the next high from your your videos or books then I, and, and not not executing then yeah, I totally agree. It's a bit pointless in a way. Absolutely. Well, Charlotte, that's a great uh, note to end on. Um, Thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. And I hope to see you in the real world at some point. Thanks a lot, Harsh. It's been a real, really fun time. So thanks a lot for having me on. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening and staying to the end. That was such an enjoyable interview. If you would like to listen to more episodes, then please consider subscribing to the podcast, which is available on your favorite providers and subscription is free. If you wish to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, please take a look at the show notes, which are available online. Thanks once again for listening. Stay safe and look after yourself. I hope you will join me again in the future.